Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, hello everyone. It's me, James, today, and I'm joined by three guests, all members of the Southeast Alaska Indigenous Transboundary Commission. Uh, What we're talking about today is accepting indigenous leadership on issues of climate change and issues of uh, more broadly ecological damage. And specifically, we're discussing an emergency declaration that they recently released about the state of the Pacific salmon population, if I'm not mistaken. So I'm going to ask each of them to introduce themselves. If you could give us your name and any relevant affiliations that you think listeners should know, that would be wonderful. Hello, my name is uh, Kirby Maldo. My ancestral name is Hapolaksa. I am from the Tsimsian people in what is now known as Northwest British Columbia, Canada. My mother is Tsimsian, my father is Giksan, and I am from Wilp We Get, which is the house of the night drummer from the Fireweed clan. I am also uh, an independent consultant and contractor. And um, I look forward to our discussion today. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, I'm Louis Wagner, Jr. from Metlakatla, Alaska. And I'm Takewoody of the Brown Bear Clan from Cape Fox, the San Yukon. And I have lived in Metlakatla my whole life of 75 years. And and we're connected to the Unic River through my grandmother. And she was born at Cape Fox. And we've been on the Unic River ever since I was big enough to go with my older brother. And so I've been up there since like 1960. Wow. And my brother's was up there. Um, close to 20 years before that. So, but our family has always been on the Unic River to um, harvest at the fish camp up there and 
and we'd fish the oligans, bring the oligans home to the to the people and and uh, catch can sacks in Metlakatla, and then people would send them out to the west coast. So we're um, very connected. We go up to the Unic in the spring for oligan and the fall for hunting now. They used to do the salmon up on the river with the fish camp. I served on our community council for from 2000 and to about, I think, 2015 in there. And now I'm their tribal rights representative for the community. And I report back to our council after each of our meetings. Thank you very much. And Guy, would you like to introduce yourself? Um, yes, my name is Guy Archibald. I'm the executive director of the Southeast Alaska Indigenous Transboundary Commission. Um, we were formed about nine years ago by a commission of 15 sovereign tribes in Southeast Alaska reacting to, you know, a, a huge amount of mind development and further potential mine development going on in the transboundary watersheds that drain from British Columbia to Alaska. I used to work at the mines. I'm an environmental chemist by trade. I help tribes monitor their own environments and their food security through science. And, and, um, and uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to this discussion as well. Yeah, that's a fantastic setup for all of you. Thank you very much. So I think we should begin because maybe people may have missed the, the extent and, and the severity of the emergency with salmon populations. And so perhaps we could start out by explaining like how it, how it was. It seems like, Louis, you have a lot of experience there. Uh, and then what has caused things to be at the situation they're at now? Would that be a good way to go about it? Yes, that would be a good way. Where we are at now on this, the salmon is that Bruce Jack mine started on the river and none of us knew about it until way late. Summers around the mid, mid 90s, 1990s. And by, by 2000, especially um, in the spring when we'd be up there, the hooligans were starting to disappear. And then in the fall moose hunting, the salmon were, were disappearing. Uh, and there's a lot less bears and moose now where the river, along the riverbank would be full of um, the parts of the fish that bears didn't eat. There would be so many bears and fish. And now you don't smell any of that. But And it's really affected the king salmon. They completely disappeared for at least six years that my son and I noticed they spawn up on the river there. And as we always pay attention, we check on the main spawning stream of Kingsbury where they spawn. And the last three years, we've been starting to see some come back. And that, that Bruce Jack mine, which found out later, they were putting their tailings into a lake up on the mountain there. And then, you know, as they filled it up and the rain filled it up, the overflow came down into the river. And the river is so shallow, it's only a few inches deep, and it's it's not very wide. It's it's the smallest river out of the Stikine and the Taku there. 
And so any pollution in that river will completely kill it off. The salmon runs their way down from what we've seen through the years. But, you know, it's also the wildlife that's disappearing with it because there's the feed isn't there. There's not the amount of seagulls, a lot less seals and sea lions. It's affecting on the food chain everything. Yeah. Um, I spent a little bit of time in your part of the world just uh, uh, pack rafting and, and and hiking and things. And certainly like it's a, it's a very beautiful place but it's a very like a fragile one too as you've explained like there's these mines can very quickly have this effect that cascades up the ecosystem could you explain a little bit of the role that salmon play not just in the uh in the provision of food for the for the animal life of the area but also like the the role they play traditionally in provisioning and feeding indigenous people well yeah we um you know we put up as much sake as we can and then then king salmon and a lot of it we'll fish and get during the winter to, to eat you know and just get them fresh because they don't keep as well in the freezer but as indigenous you could you know look in our pantry and see we've lived the same life as i grew up with with my parents and grandparents nothing has changed for us we've taught our children the, the same way how to harvest and um, take care of the fish. <clears throat> and back um, in the 50s, when I was a little kid in Catlin, Alaska, hardly anyone, if they even had a refrigerator, they didn't have freezers. So they they had to smoke the fish really hard and, and they put them in those um, things. They're like four gallon coffee cans to. Um, with newspaper on the bottom and on top, and they would keep through the winter. They wouldn't wouldn't get moldy, so that that was their the main staple for the for the whole year. Is it a situation now that like people just can't rely on salmon as a staple food because of these mining tailings reducing the population? Yeah, without any hardly any king salmon coming in. There's you know a few from the hatchery out there, but. They even um, in Ketchikan, they they've closed the king salmon derby for I think it's into its fourth year now. So it's just um, if that that other big mine goes in, well, the river will be destroyed, and it's going to flow all the way out into into the ocean here into um, Clarence Straits and Dixon entrances. There's be no avoiding it. It's got nowhere else to go. It, that comes straight out through the West Beam Canal and then East Beam Canal. Kirby, I know you're, you're not quite in exactly the same place, but can you explain the situation with the salmon population where you are? Yeah, and maybe I'll give a little more context to that. Um, I live in uh, northern British Columbia, northwest British Columbia, on the um, on on the in the Skeena River um, watershed, and. Um, over the past uh, probably 30 or 40 years, we've seen an extreme decline in salmon, uh, specifically sockeye uh, and uh, king salmon, as you guys call it. We call them spring salmon over here, but uh, we've seen an extreme decline in uh, returns. Um, 
and um, you know we've we've stopped a lot of our commercial fisheries and our food fisheries uh, until which time we feel that the uh, the returns are sufficient enough so that we can continue to harvest. So we've got uh, the Taii test fishery at the mouth of the Skeena, and um, they they do a count every year um, throughout, starting in in the spring and throughout most of the summer they do a test fishery and they estimate the amount of salmon that are returning uh and we do not fish as i said commercially or for food until we feel that the numbers are sufficient that have gone past that fishery there are many obstacles that face salmon today uh, most of which are a result of human activity, uh, logging, mining, commercial fishing, oil and gas. Um, and we all have to take a little bit of responsibility for that because we all enjoy those um, resources and we use them. And uh, I've always said to people that we can't mine our way out of this the global warming and, and climate change. We have to learn how to um we have to learn how to use less and um as i said you know mining obviously it's it's a it's a big concern but there's also logging there's oil and gas as well as commercial fishery um you know there's uh, a lot of things that happen out in uh open waters in the north pacific that can be changed fairly easily um, you know, they, there's a, a fishery, uh, right now, I, I believe it's an area 104, uh, uh, a, um, fishery that is targeting, um, pink salmon, but by our estimations and by estimations from Alaska fisheries, they are the bycatch for Skeena salmon, Skeena sockeye salmon that are returning to the Skeena is about 470,000. Now, these are sockeye that are a bycatch. Um, we're not asking this fishery to stop. We're asking this fishery to be more of a terminus fishery, which means that they better target the pink salmon. So right now they're they're fishing in open waters uh approximately half the fleet from what i understand we're not asking this fishery to stop we're asking them to move inside so that skeen and sockeye can go past this fishery um and right now we are just barely making our escapement every year that make it up into the headwaters where they can spawn and so, you know, there, there's a lot of different ways we can address the issue of salmon um, declining in numbers. Uh, there's some low-hanging fruit. There's a lot of other things that are going to take a lot of time to enforce. But um, I'm hoping as transboundary nations, we can come together to work towards making sure that salmon have a fighting chance salmon are very resilient um they're a keystone species and they're a good indicator of the health of the environment 
and surrounding areas as well as the water. Yeah, I think that's an excellent summary. Thank you. And perhaps, Guy, you have a little bit more experience on the industrial side of thing. I guess, can you explain how it is that um, on the face of it, because Louis was saying the tribal nations weren't aware that this mine in one case or these certainly like these other practices, right? Um, some of which are sort of very nebulous, like global warming, others which are specific, like this sockeye bycatch and, and the forestry. Were the nations in question here, like the, the people whose ancestral and current homelands this is happening on, not consulted? Or was there insufficient explanation of the consequences when these, with these mines and, and forestry operations were opened? Um, certainly, especially early on, you know, to this day and to this day, the right of free entry, which means somebody could be sitting pretty much anywhere in the world, get on the Internet and claim a mine claim without any kind of notification to the landowner or surface owner by swiping a credit card. Oh, well, wow. so uh, there's no even requirement for notification on, on that. And, you know, early on, the mining companies you know, they do a uh, investor um, presentation. Here's that they're doing in Las Vegas and, and New York and this and that. And then they attempt to come into the communities with that presentation. And and what they w- might call uh, meaningful engagement is actually one, it's completely one-sided. It's not respectful of the process within that tribe or that community. And it's completely tone deaf. And and so what engagement, what consultation does happen is is incredibly inadequate. To make matters worse, the South the Alaskan tribes um, are landless communities. We don't don't have jurisdiction over a land area. And uh, great work is being done though. We're not starting from zero here. Uh, First Nations out on the land through land guardian programs and more doing great work southeast tribes monitoring you know their ecosystems and food security and fish consumption and all that great science and information um but we do need to incorporate um one we need to recognize that um we can't manage a a complex organism such as a watershed by dividing it down the middle under two different jurisdictions. We have to, I don't say move the border, we basically have to erase it. And and we need to treat that ecosystem as a whole. Um, climate change is having a huge impact. Uh, the Chinook or the King Salmon or the Spring Salmon, they're the largest, so they have the largest egg. They have the less surface area in the environment to absorb oxygen, so they're kind of an indicator of the first, you have a problem here, kind of red flag going up, you know, in your in your network complex ecosystem. And, and both Kirby and Wright were right, it's the crash of the entire network that we're seeing. It, Salmon is just an indicator of that, but we're seeing it across the board. And it's unfortunate because here, especially right now in Southeast Alaska, where I live in Juneau, Alaska, prior to European contact, there was probably five times the population living here than there is now. You look at maps of the old village, they're everywhere. 
<laughs> and they've been there for tens of thousands of years. They managed to do it sustainably, do it with balance, do it with effective, uh, you don't really call it in management, but in engagement mm -hmm. with nature. And, and so here we are kind of on the front lines of it. And strangely enough, we have the solution and a people who have within their oral history, the stories of, of migrating due to climate change, of adjusting their life due to climate change. It's in the history or, you know, the current oral history. And so when we're looking, when we say unify here, there's a great voice um, in the indigenous people to if there is, yeah, and it's, it's hard to justify with mining, I'm just going to say that because it's an inherently extractive down to the last profitable dollar industry. It's not sustainable. It's, it's reducible constantly as it operates. Uh, and, uh, and now it's being used to justify uh, climate change. Adjusting to climate change is now being used to justify more mining which again, as usual, is going to fall on the backs of the local people and communities and indigenous people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's shockingly similar to the issues that we see where I live, which is at the other end of the United States and on its southern border where you know, the Colorado River is a binational river, right, which is managed by two countries kind of in aggressive competition. And we're seeing the same thing yeah. here, right? The justification. different states. Yes, yeah, seven yeah. different states. Yeah. Yes, yes, and all of them have competing. Uh, like I was rafting the Colorado River last year, and I, I've paddled the Colorado River. But the the change in that river ecosystem that I've seen, and I've only lived in the U.S. for you know fifteen years, is it, remarkable. And I can't imagine what it's like over seventy five years. And um, and the same thing with mining. Actually, we're seeing the justification of very damaging lithium mining right as as and, and then being told that this is a solution to climate change and then whilst also destroying these ecosystems if people think it's just an issue that affects one group of people in one group of the part of the world it's not it, it's it, it's very universal and that's just in the united states we see the same thing at places i've traveled for work in east africa or in, in south america Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. 
How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. All 12 episodes of The Passage are available now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I wonder then if we could talk about the value of accepting indigenous leadership when it comes to um, addressing, I think you, we began addressing that in Guy's comment very well, but perhaps one thing we could talk about when we talk about that is um, I think when people think about specifically British Columbia and Alaska, they, they, people will use the term like frontier or wilderness a lot, right? Which it raises the fact that, as, as Guy mentioned, and, and both of you have, have shared with us, that people have been living there for tens of thousands of years in a way that that was sustainable, right? Like these weren't un, places without human beings. It wasn't empty land. And it was just land that wasn't inhabited by people of European ancestry. And And so when we talk about like how to go forward with this land, why it's important to listen to the people who have always been there. Is that a good framework? All we have is our stories and how how we grew up with the old folks, and um, we're lucky to have a rowboat and a pair of oars back in back in the fifties. Still, late fifties, uh, some of the people started being able to get a little three horse Johnson, something like that, and that was a lot of power. But we also um, the glaciers have melted away up on on the unic river there so that really affects affecting the amount of water flow and the level of the water very important to a lot of us yet to live live the way of life that we've always lived and all the testimony that i have done is um not serious because i don't have a college education like that it just um that's that's what they want i mean the people they learn it from school books now, but they they've never lived a life and been on all these different areas, the beaches, you know. And we have all our seasons. Every season we have something to look forward to. It's like right after well, I'll start with the spring on the Ooligans and and then seaweed and king salmon is a big big thing to go after. And then we have, you know, the summer and then into fall. Yeah. Also, we have the, the greens called asparagus, wild asparagus. Uh, we're, we're harvesting all the time. We, um, our, our children that we've, we have, um, they all know 
how to do it, where to go. So we've been continuing in our teaching on, on our our side. We're just, um, they don't want to take us serious, I guess, anyway. So but been, you know, been to a lot of meetings and talked about a lot of the stuff here. And it's just, it's going to be a shame if we, we just keep, losing everything we're we're getting very close uh, salmon are getting a lot less i've been a commercial fisherman my whole life and and then later as the kids got older we went into tendering so we just had family aboard and you know we would get loads after loads through the um 70s into the 80s and 90s and then pretty soon you could see the saners are coming in with less and less fish and just Oligan alone, and been 15 years up there for the Oligan in the spring, and <laughs> get out of school for a little while and to go up the river. It, ours from Matlakatla, Alaska, to um, up to the Unique River is a little over 100 miles. So we have a 200 mile round trip to get up there and back. And there's no safe harbor there, it's wide open to the weather. So you have to really best to learn from somebody who's been up there a few times and you know they know where you can maybe duck duck out of for a safe spot and um easy to get hurt on the river because it's so shallow yeah we lost the 15 years on the river that's what it was due to um weak runs and they disappeared for a while they they were going up the other streams to get clean water even on I call Revilla Gagato on Ketchikan Island. They went up there one year, and it was a really good run. But then they'll go through Beam Canal and the other streams when they have to. Oligan are pretty smart. They um they don't have to go back to the same river all the time. We'd have to go and through the canal and check the other places where they might go up. But with the salmon. They need that clean river because they won't go up any other river. And their numbers really, really have dropped. Used to see king salmon, you know, probably as far as I could reach, which is about six feet in spawners in the river. And three years ago, they were um, <laughs> maybe long as one arm. And couldn't find any real big ones in there, but it was good to see some of them coming back. <clears throat> but that won't last long if things continue to to go the way they are. Yeah, it's just, it's very sad to hear like this. Uh, yeah, this these changes you've seen, I suppose. So perhaps you could explain to us like there's this emergency declaration that's been made, right? And we've heard. Um, Louis explained like very eloquently how how this how like he's seen this decay over his life. Um, how can like accepting this leadership, right? There's this emergency that that's been declared. I guess like um, is it is it possible? You said salmon were very resilient, and you said the Uligan were very smart. Like, can things return to the way they were? Can we at least stop things getting worse? Like. And how? Yeah, I you know I think um, our relationship with the environment is is broken. Um, 
I'm a communication specialist. That's that's what I do. So I I am all about relationships. Um, now, when I talk about relationships, I'm just I'm not talking just about relationships with uh, our fellow human beings, but I'm talking about relationships with the land, the water, the air, and um, I like to simplify it for people. I always tell people, you know, when you're in a relationship with a significant other or or a pet you know a lot of people have pets um it's it's a reciprocal relationship there's a lot of give and take and and there's a lot of um um compromise and as as a young boy and growing up uh in in Gixan territory and in Chimsan territory I I was always taught that you only took what you needed and you didn't you didn't take any more and you respected all living things um you know i i don't mean to pick on anybody but sport fishing um is is against our laws you know we we don't play with fish it's 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 just something we do not do um and and when i'm talking about our relationship with with all living things uh you know the land the water uh, the the swimmers the two-legged the four-legged the ones fly uh, our relationship with them is broken. You know, we we used to harvest a lot more than we do now. You know, in, in the Skeena watershed, you know, we used to harvest seals. We used to harvest, um, you know, a lot more things other than just salmon. And what we've done over the last 50 or so years is put so much pressure on salmon that they just can't sustain it. You know, um, I, I, you know, I, I might not be very popular popular for saying this, but, you know, we, we used to eat a lot more seals and, and I think we should commercialize a seal hunt um, and and sell those products so that people can make money and people can be fed. Um, I'm not blaming the seals for, for the decline in salmon. Uh, there's a lot of uh, factors at play when it comes to the decline in salmon. But... Um, what I'm trying to explain is that our relationship with the environment is broken and, and right. we need to fix it. And and it's out of balance right now. And we need to bring it back to balance. Mm -hmm. And we just need to consume less. Certainly, yeah. And does that, um, I'm curious, that sort of like heavy emphasis on salmon, is that because it was very commercial so people would be able to harvest just the salmon and sell it as opposed to harvesting these other animals that they were harvesting before i think i think uh salmon were very plentiful right you know you hear stories about when when the europeans first arrived you know they could i've heard stories of them you know putting a bucket into the water and the, pulling the bucket out and it would be just full of salmon right so i thought wow. i i think that um you know there there was a mentality that you know the the resource was infinite right it would last forever uh, I, I think that was the mentality, and so they just harvested it, harvested as much as they could, as fast as they could, and, and sent it around the world. And uh, you know, if if any of your listeners haven't tasted salmon, it, it's it's one of the most flavorful things you've ever you will ever taste, and and it's it's the best meat in the world on the planet for you in terms of nutrients and and such. And uh, you know, it's it's totally natural. And, uh, yeah, it, it, it's just all around good for the environment. You know, it, it feeds the, the birds, the two legs, the four legs, it even feeds plants, you know, and, uh, it's, it's so resilient and we just need to give salmon a chance and, uh, 
figure out a way forward where where we can have a, a reciprocal relationship with salmon and the environment. Yeah. And perhaps, like, are there concrete steps? Uh, like, a lot of our listeners are not in, in the areas where you are, but they, and they could be all over the world, right? But are there things they could do to show solidarity, to give you support? Um, how can they help? Um, well, I would encourage encourage everybody to, you know, visit our website and, and kind of understand what we see as a pathway forward for remedying this. You know, it's it's you shouldn't come to the table to complain about a problem unless you have a remedy proposed here. <laughs> and and that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to take that knowledge that um, is is in you know louis and just in the eunuch and the knowledge in every little stream even the knowledge within the genetics that fine grain of every salmon that goes up every little stream and get that incorporated into you know the uh you know into an engagement process that ultimately the way we've been doing it is a failed experiment we can call that now because these methods we put in to try to protect wild salmon we've seen nothing but wild salmon decline um, you asked if salmon are resilient they very much are they very much are resilient there's reason there's five species of salmon here is because of all the uh upheaval seismic upheaval living on the pacific rim um they're very resilient to the occasional large impact just like you and me though we're very unresilient to constant pressure and stress you know what it does to your digestive system nervous system everything your family life <laughs> uh it's the same for these ecosystems it's not the occasional huge impact it's the it's the continuous stress and this area was not, it's not really pristine. It was highly modified by the people They actively engaged with their environment. They enhanced salmon streams and resting pools. They built clam gardens. They moved trees and vegetation around, you know, enhanced beaches. It was very active. And we can incorporate that knowledge into how we move forward on a lot of these things. And we need to do that. Yeah, when, when people ask me what they can do, Mm -hmm. I respond by saying, what you can do is change your habits. Now, a lot of people think that this, this climate change problem, uh, resource extraction, etc., is too big for us to, to tackle. But uh, actually, it's not. You know, um, If we all do a little bit and, and just change our habits, um, we, we can make huge change. You know, I, I always think about... Um, you know, in, in British Columbia and in Canada, uh, gosh, about, you know, 40 years ago, um, they brought in a law stating that everybody had to wear seatbelts. Um, there was huge backlash. Nobody wanted to wear a seatbelt. They, they weren't used to it, right? But after a while, you know, nobody, nobody even bothered to complain about it. We just do it. Whenever I get into my vehicle now, it's second nature to put my seatbelt on. I don't even think about it. It's done. Now, if we can all just look at some of the habits that we have, whether it's, you know, um, using too much water, maybe some wasteful practices, 
um, you know, driving when we don't need to drive. Maybe, maybe we can walk a little more often. Maybe we can bike a little more often. Just really look at what actions you're taking daily that may be contributing to climate change and global warming and try to change one habit. And when you've got that habit changed, change another one. And, um, you know, I, I think over time, we can we can fix this, but it's going to take a concerted effort by everybody on this planet. And, and more so by some of us who are a little more um, privileged, I guess, to be able to change our habits. Thanks. No, I think that was very, very well said. Um, do you have anything to add, Louis? Yeah, I appreciate what Kirby said earlier on how we're connected to the land. Well, you know, everybody's grandmother was your grandmother when I was growing up. And as long as you, you know, you paid attention and you would help. And I, I remember when in the fish camp, grandmother brought my friend and, and myself into the smokehouse and they had they had a fish that was just put in the salmon that was in the middle and the the finished salmon that was ready to come out on the end and they they would only tell you once they said you can eat all you want but if you waste one piece you are never welcomed in the smokehouses again so they didn't waste time and they told would tell the children when they get too loud your children are to be seen but not heard. And just like that, they never stopped teaching. It was wish I could remember more from a long time ago. But yeah, I was lucky that they treated, you know, whatever friend I had, their their grandparents were were mine. It just um learned how to get bark off the cedar tree and so you don't kill the cedar tree from. My friend's grandmother, I never forgot it when my wife wanted to go out and get, get some bark. She was surprised. I told her I know how to do it. And so we would we went out and got it. But just things like that. Just, we just try not to um, leave a footprint when when we left our cooking sites or any camp areas. So. I just wanted to add that. Thank you. Thank you. It's very insightful. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. 
Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the Ferryman of Souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. All 12 episodes of The Passage are available now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So talking of leaving a footprint, I think perhaps the last thing I want to talk about is... Um, mind tailings and and the way that because some some of these minds so there are some i guess minds that people want to build and there's some minds that people have already built right and i, I was reading on your website about a tailings dam uh, and what that is and what that does and, and what that might mean for protecting the ecosystem um so can you explain what a tailings dam is and what a tailings dam failure is I just I learned a little bit on um, at a meeting up in Anchorage on the uh, forum on the Alaska environment, and they had scientists there that that were speaking. And this is a few years ago now, and they talked about every mine that's in place is poisoning the rivers to this day, and it will always poison because it doesn't stop bleeding out of there wherever they were mining. And that was very interesting. And, and they had just started to um, do some water sampling. And we were trying to do that. And this year we were finally able to do something with that. We got to start with, with Guy there and looking forward to get water samples come fall at moose hunting time. And we'll have to see how many he would like to have this time. <laughs> I just know, no, it's not good. It's poisonous. The water used to be that beautiful bluish glacier water coming down through the river there. I'm not seeing that anymore. So when I want to get fresh water for coffee, I'll I'll go to the side mountain where I know it's clean and coming coming off the mountain. Things like that we have to watch out for. You know, specifically to a tailings dam, that's just the containment structure for yeah. a tailings dump. They may call them tailings disposal facilities or storage facilities, but they're never coming back for them. It's it's a dump. It's 
uh, permitted just as any municipal landfill would be. Uh, British Columbia tends to use what they call subaqueous tailings disposable. They need to keep oxygen from the tailings because otherwise they're going to oxidize. They're going to create acid mine drainage, dissolve all of these heavy metals into the salmon streams and basically a large risk, a large threat. Um, we live in a rainforest, so that water balance is very critical and it's almost impossible to do in a time of climate change. They're wanting to maintain three meters of water on top of these tailings in perpetuity. I mean, at what point in perpetuity does any certainty of your predictions completely break down? Yeah. And they require massive amounts of water treatment. Uh, and it's not just the tailings, it's the waste rock. In, in Louis Eunuch River, it's not just the Bruce Jack, but now they're permitting the SK Creek, an open pit, and already permitted, but not yet built, is the KSM, which would be one of the top five largest open pits in the world. Wow. On a small watershed with incredibly low hardness of water, meaning it cannot absorb any kind of change of pH or acid, um, and is home to you know, uh, the spawning and rearing grounds and genetic diversity of uh, Pacific salmon. And in the long run, the only way we're going to keep salmon from extinction, as well as Kirby says, trying to help, you know, change our, our attitude with this world. But we have to maintain that genetic diversity that's spawn in all of those little tiny streams throughout the coast and far into British Columbia. Um, we need that genetic diversity. Salmon are incredibly resilient, but we also can't, you know, completely ignore our part in disrupting the natural cycles here. Um, and as they pointed out, they are incredibly disruptive. I did, you know, want to say that, you know, Louis mentioned how they're not listen. He's not listened to, mm -hmm. and that story can be multiplied in every community and tribe throughout the Pacific Northwest and probably the entire United States, if not yeah. the world. Uh, but that's what we're trying to remedy here trying to let's all get together let's ignore that border we find out when in these meetings like our summit that we're actually related some of us are related to one another uh and and look at this in the big picture holistic way you have to look at big things like climate change and natural ecosystems and complex mining that just gets bigger and bigger just due to economy of scale they mined the good stuff a long time ago they took the chocolate chips out of the chocolate chip cookie now they're going after the baking soda and that right. creates exponential more waste right yeah because there's less of the stuff they're looking for and more of the waste wow well, yeah i've certainly um spent some time around some abandoned mines in alaska and it's it's wild to see this massive intrusion and then abandonment and just sort of a complete sort of abnegation of the responsibility for the damage that is done. I look at the climax molybdenum mine in Leadville, Colorado. It's a good oh, example. Yeah. Been there too. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe you've seen that one. <laughs> I've raced my, raced my bike up there a couple of times. Yeah. I um, used to work there. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. The, wow. That is a, uh, and the impact that it's had on that town of, sort of the mining, it's all, it's a process that hurts almost everyone apart from the people who own mining companies, right? Like it doesn't, 
benefit as many as many people as as it in the long run it hurts i think you're going towards benefits and there there should be equitable benefits but the benefit the the first cut of the pie is is the environment itself um they have it, it not only has to just be maintained and sustained it has to actually benefit at this point if we're going to avoid large-scale collapse and um and uh but there's ways of doing that and part of that is giving indigenous people a strong say of consent the new laws you know uh, canada ratified the uh united nations declaration on the rights of indigenous people bc has implemented that through uh the declaration on the rights of Indigenous people's act they are supposed to respect you know these traditional territories regardless of the land status of alaska tribes um they certainly have an obligation to respect the first nations and the unceded territories of the first nation people in british columbia that's clear by law um and the supreme courts have expanded that um to people that no longer live in alaska if they still have that direct connection to their traditional territories within um i'm sorry british columbia um and so um we're going to use that to make sure that louis and everybody is heard and and uh get that knowledge as part of and not just the knowledge but the active participation that's part of the benefit sharing if indeed anything happens but at this point we just need so much more restoration uh, before we damage it further quite frankly yeah. um yeah of course so you spoke about this large open pit mine um it's is there something people can do if if they want to i'm guessing it would be optimal for them not to open another massive open pit mine is there something people could do to help maybe make that a process that you know where indigenous people are listened to and not just mining interests well this indeed is for me and i'll be quick i think you know uh, unfortunately the the engaging with the process with the recognition that the process is broken but engaging it to the maximum extent you can to try to get your word out there and influence decision makers um you got to at least do that yeah i'm sure kirby has stood the lines out there in british columbia i'm sure he can speak to it please do kirby yeah you know if you're if you or your listeners haven't heard of of the term indigenous science Mm -hmm. i would like to introduce that Uh, indigenous science is a distinct time-tested and methodological knowledge system that can enhance and complement Western science. Now, I've introduced this many times. Um, I, it, it's by no means did I invent this at all, but um, I've I've been introduced to it about a year ago, and I've been using it a lot now. In many instances, Indigenous science is thousands of years old, whereas Western science in some areas such as British Columbia, Canada, where we've only, um, you know, been in contact with European settlers for just over 500 years. Indigenous science is much, much older. Um, it's, as I said earlier, it's it's time-tested and uh, the knowledge is, is immense. And, um, you know, that alone should give a lot of credence to, to the knowledge and, and the science of Indigenous peoples. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's an excellent 
consideration. Um, we had an episode this week, actually, where we spoke about indigenous medical technologies. And I think it's important to recognize these things as on a par with, uh, yeah, like European Western technology, medical technologies, right. As opposed to like, different from, um, but, you know, have them on the same level and the same with the science that you mentioned. I think that's an excellent point too. <laughs> I, have to chime in because I that point of view sometimes I have to laugh because what is it at least 65 percent of all pharmaceuticals are derived from natural plants that the indigenous people had full mm -hmm. knowledge yeah. for a long time Aspirin, and that right. information wasn't necessarily transferred in the nicest manner often so we yes. do need to acknowledge that <laughs> yeah yeah every time we take an aspirin we're benefiting from indigenous science right indigenous medical technologies yeah, and, and those technologies are incredible. The halibut hook is just a prime example. It's it's an incredible study in the morphology of the mouth of a halibut, the habits of a halibut, and they can design the hook um, to target very specifically the size of the halibut so they're not getting the big breeders and this and that. And and just the amount of of observation adjustment engineering that goes into a halibut hook is in itself very credible the western people when they moved in and at least here on the coast they looked at the way uh the clinkite and shimshian people were harvesting fish with with uh, beach traps and 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 beach nets and and whatnot and they copied that fish wheels and they copied that technology but then they took it to the massive extreme and just mm -hmm took everything out of the rivers but they used indigenous technology to do it ironically enough uh so we can turn that around you know we can use that technology to to turn this around and and there's no reason why we shouldn't yeah, i think that's an excellent point is there anything you each would like to leave our listeners with maybe a place they can find you online a way they can show support and something like that a little bit that i didn't mention was I'm also I'm I'm Simpson and Clinket. My grandfather and great grandfather, they came from Hartley Bay when when Matlakatla was built by them in eighteen eighty seven, I believe. And um they they were um boat builders. They sold their rowboats up and down the coast. But yeah, yeah. I couldn't spend enough time with my grandfather. He he was good and just you never stop learning from all of our elders. I just wanted to throw that in there. Thank you. Thank you so much. How about you, Kirby? Anything you'd like to leave people with? I just wanted to leave people with this thought. You know, as I said earlier, um look at look at the habits that you can change that, that are the low hanging fruit. And I'd also like them to um, you know, think about um how they can change think about holding your elected officials accountable um i'm not sure what it's like where you're from but you know a lot of our elected officials they like to talk but they don't like to do anything so <laughs> that's universal action, ac actions speak louder than words hold your elected officials accountable Every time you see them, ask them what they're doing about protecting wild salmon. Thanks. Thank you. Guy, anything from you? 
Okay. Yeah. Quickly along the lines of, of what Kirby was saying. I mean, recognize that the metals that are necessary to support our lifestyle are already there. They're in our walls, in our cars, in our computers. The idea that we need more of these metals in our lives is just the idea that we need more stuff in our lives. And that addiction is what's strangling this planet. Um, and so Louis, I mean, uh, sorry, Kirby's, you know, advice is, is, you know, is, is very strong, but, uh, if you can want to follow along, go to mm -hmm. www.seitc.org, O-R-G, so Southeast Alaska Indigenous Transboundary Commission, S-E-I-T-C. We're just getting started. And so, um, there should be some incredible stories along the way. One last thing I'd like to say is that we really need to consider the circular economy. Right now, we live in a society where we throw away so many things. You know, I, I, I think about vehicles that go to the junkyard and they're crushed. You know, like we should be taking those vehicles apart, using the parts that we can, instead of just crushing it into this big massive rock that we're eventually going to need to dismantle again sometime in the future we should be doing that now and if there are any good parts in that vehicle then they should be put back into circulation yeah i think that's an excellent yeah. point they, they are elements after all <laughs> yeah yeah it's well, they're already broken down into the elements, right? And we're just yeah. crushing them yeah. back into a, a big rock again. And then we're going to have to take them out of the, into the elements again. Yeah, when, when we run out of stuff to dig out of the ground. It's very sad to think that like the same desire... Uh, a colleague and I spent some time reporting on the civil war in Myanmar last year. And this, that's the same thing. It's people trying to extract rare earth metals. And, and it, it's, it's people dying and the environment being damaged because of it. And it's, I think... Kirby made an excellent point that like if we don't you know those things are already there and guys said it like in our walls and in our computers and things and, and we could do so much better to use the ones we have rather than consistently damaging people on the planet to dig up more respectful yeah be respectful thank you so much all of you for giving me some of your afternoon and sharing your time with our listeners I know they would really appreciate it and I do too It Happened Here is a production of Cool Zone Media. For more podcasts from Cool Zone Media, visit our website, coolzonemedia.com, or check us out on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find sources for It Could Happen Here updated monthly at coolzonemedia.com slash sources. Thanks for listening. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., 
we dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.